Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger, and I am here today with a good old friend. <laughs> Very <laughs> Even when you say that, you know that our listeners now, okay, just so you know, Andy is trying to describe exactly our age difference, which is only about, what, eight years, probably? Maybe six years? Five? Now, Jim, you're just not being you're not being kind here. I got with me Jay Warner Wallace. Hey, listen, I'll be the one making fun of you. Thank you very much. I know. Well, this is we were just before we started this recording, we're making fun of each other, but but that just comes with knowing each other well. So that's good. Yeah. No, the truth is, is that we have been friends for a long time. We have done many speaking engagements together. You have yep. spoken at the Apologize Canada conference on uh, a number of occasions. And I think this is a fun fact, Jim, if I understand correctly, and I, I think this is right, the AC podcast was the first conference that you spoke at. I think it was, um, especially about um, my first book. You know, sometimes you'll speak at a conference, but it's it's rather, it's it's more the kind of stuff you're, you're talking about with your youth group or the stuff you're doing if you're, I was a pastor, so I maybe would do a message, like, like a pastor would do a message. But, but then when I wrote a book, I think you were the very first conference to pick me up and bring me out. And I thought, wow, I'm somebody now. As a matter of fact, it's painful to watch that that first conference. You know how this is, right? When you write something or you you record something or you uh, do a video or you do a talk publicly, uh, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And oh my gosh, I look back at that and it's, I'm, I'm embarrassed, but well, I, it, is what it is. And thanks, by the way, for leaving it up for, you know, 10 years. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I've, uh, I've been a pastor for 20 years and I have to confess that I do not listen to my old sermons because that is not healthy for the soul. No, Jim, though, is a, a, a good friend. He is an incredible thinker. Uh, listen, before I give you kind of, for those of you who don't know Jim, uh, let, let me just give you just a quick overall snapshot. Uh, Jim is a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, a popular national speaker and best-selling author. He continues to consult on cold case investigations while serving as a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He is also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, uh, Biola University, and Southern Evangelical Seminary and a faculty member at Summit Ministries. Jim became a Christ follower at the age of 35 after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skill set as a detective. He eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies from Gateway Seminary. Now, that's kind of the Jim Wallace, you know, about statement. But let me give you the Andy Steiger yeah, I was impressed, by the way, that, that you were able to remember all that off the top of your head. It wasn't obvious to me at all that you had turned to, away from the camera and were reading that off some stupid screen that I probably had somebody post on my website, which I need to have that removed. That's uh, and that is correct. That is yes, correct. I but listen, I'm going to say this because I think this is maybe perhaps even more impressive. Jim is one of the hardest working people I know. And I and I say that sincerely. And you also are are one of the sharpest individuals I know. And listen, Jim, if I were a criminal, which I can neither confirm nor deny, but if I were a criminal, I wouldn't want you working my my case. I'm going to tell you that right now, because, you know, you whatever you pour yourself into and your wife will confirm this, I'm sure you just go 110 percent. Well, I always assumed you were good for something. I was just trying to figure out what it is. So I, I, I have you in my sights, but I, I got to find a crime to connect you to. So, <laughs> but yeah, but most of it, um, yeah, I think that 
uh, you know, I just get a work ethic. I think working in these cases because they're such every mistake you make working a case eventually is going to be on dateline. Uh, and because they're going to be in the courtroom with you, and you're not going to be able to select what they're going to play. So I'm always uh, fearful of, did I leave something that the defense is going to manipulate or take advantage of? I'm going to, you know, we're all going to look silly. So yeah, that's part of it. It's probably just fear as much as anything else. It's just fear and pride. You know, I don't want to be made too publicly a fool of too often. So, so we try to work hard. Um, but I'm guessing you take that work ethic with you in everything you do. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this, this book was such a crazy book to write that we're going to talk about today. I, I, it was, I don't even think I would have been able to write it if it hadn't been for COVID because that canceled, you know, all those speaking engagements we talk about, they all got canceled. I'm sure you, you saw the same thing and had to do the same thing. So I had time to finish this. And then after it was over, I thought, what was I thinking with the deadlines I had set if we'd had a full calendar? I just never would have got done to this level for sure. But yeah, so a lot of it is you just, this is how it is. If you ask me to do something, I'm probably going to overdo it. Well, let, let's get into this. Today, we're going to be talking about the subject of your book, Person of Interest, which uh, is the, the subtitle being Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. It looks like this. It is a great book. And this is a part of a series of books that you have written. It started with the book, uh, cold case Christianity. Now I right. have uh, many of the other oh, books, you yeah, know, that man. you've written, such as uh, Forensic Faith and God's Crime Scene. Let me ask you, Jim, when you first started with Cold Case Christianity, did you anticipate that you would take this very much uh, crime scene kind of driven approach to not just to Jesus, but just to faith in general? Well, I mean, look, that was my own story. Uh, I mean, I didn't know what other skills to apply to. And so if someone said X is true uh, and I was going to accept that, I, I'm not the kind of person who probably would accept that without testing it myself, whatever the X claim is. So when someone says something about Jesus and I was about 35, that was just the approach I took. Now, once I got to a place where somebody's saying, hey, you should write a book. Well, now it kind of changes, right? I mean, I think a lot of that is, is that I've learned that this is just who I am. And if you said, who's that guy who writes about Christianity, who's a cold case detective? Well, everyone's going to say, well, that's that dude Wallace, right? Because that's just, the, I'm in that lane by myself. And, and so I just knew that I'm going to, I think people are interested in my approach. And, and if I was going to write, for example, a book on something other than this kind of an approach, why would you care what Jim Wallace has to say about it? So, so I think that I, I do try to stay in my lane and there's lots of, of things about working investigations that are similar to what historians do, but we have a much higher bar than historians. I'll be honest with you, because I'm thinking about, can I get this in front of 12 jurors and can I get them to agree? And so this, and I'm testing those theories all the time. Not, not many historians are going to propose something about the past and then have to run it through a, a clinical trial, basically, at a, at a trial, and then uh, pitch it to a jury and see if they agree. So that process, it, it informs you. It, it teaches you. Right away, I can tell you, if, uh, some historians will say, this is a significant piece of evidence. Like, give you an example. Um, that principle of embarrassment. We always talk about it. The Gospels include embarrassing details. Can that indicate sincerity or reliability or truth, truth telling? Yes, it can. But I'm going to tell you, 
probably half the guys I talked to are so good at, as cold case. Uh, you know, they, were, they did a, a murder 30 years ago and they've been lying about it for 30 years that when they retell you the lie, they will include principles of embarrassment because they know it makes their story sound legitimate. So I never go that direction. You'll never hear me talk about the principle of embarrassment because I don't find it compelling. And I don't, I, I understand that it's kind of an historical thing. If you're doing history, this might be something in your tool chest, but as a guy doing this in front of a jury, eh, I mean, they're going to listen to that tape and they're going to listen to him include all those principles of embarrassment. And I still got to convince him that he's lying. So I still got to convince the jury that he's lying. So I, I just don't I just know what works and what doesn't work in front of a jury. I want to talk about that because, I mean, with so with thing, the things you just talked about, there, there's there's so many different directions to go in. Just to just to clarify from what was just said. First of all, you came to faith at 35. You were an mm -hmm. atheist. You've applied mm -hmm. your detective skills to faith, right. which leads you to Jesus. So I, I want to get into this book, but before we get into the book, I think we just yeah. need to just appreciate your story. So give me a little bit of a snapshot on how did that happen? Because uh, if I remember correctly, your wife, Susie, came to faith first and this kind of began getting you to investigate. Is that how it happened? Or no, so you're, you're kind of right in a sense that uh, she didn't come to faith first, but she was interested before I was. And so she was the one to say, hey, should we go to church with our kids? And I was really surprised. Um, we had been together about 18 years. I don't think we had a single conversation about God in that entire time. I had no interest and I didn't think she did either, really. I mean, I knew that she had been raised kind of as a cultural Catholic. But I mean, so we would like uh, on occasion, I probably in the 18 years, maybe half of those, we would go to a mass on, on Easter, not Easter, uh, Christmas for sure. But I think that's like cultural. Doesn't everyone go to some kind of a celebration of Christmas on Christmas? I mean, I didn't had it really any idea that she was that interested, but then we had kids and she was suddenly asking the question by the time they were like preschoolers, well, should we put our kids in uh, church preschool? Why? I said, no, but if you, no, like, if you want, I'm fine with it. I'll do whatever you think is about. I trust Susie and I'm happy. But she still wasn't like pressing it like, Jim, we have to believe it's true, though. I thought it would be useful, uh, but I didn't think it, I had to believe it was true in order to put our kids in the preschool. How many kids are probably in uh, Christian preschools of parents who are not believers? Probably quite a few. Mm -hmm. So I was willing to be one of those. Um, and so that's really where we were. Now, I try to I don't usually share my personal testimony because I always tell people it doesn't matter. No one's testimony matters in my view. Uh, what matters is whether or not it's true and people tell stories. So what? I got all kinds of good friends who are Mormons who have powerful personal testimonies about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. Doesn't make it true. So I'm not usually interested. But in this book, Person of Interest, I really take the time to talk about that story with Susie because it was just one of those people have asked for it. And it was really wrapped up in two kinds of investigations I did. One, inside the New Testament and one outside. So the inside the New Testament investigation is cold case Christianity. The outside the New Testament investigation is person of interest. And I wrote those other three books because I pitched them to the publisher I had at the time. And I said, which one do you want me to write first? I had all three in mind and they picked the order. So the order was cold, uh, cold case, then God's crime scene, and then forensic faith. Uh, and then I wrote a book on uh, Gen Z as a youth pastor, um, how to raise Gen Z with Sean McDowell. And then this is the first book, Returning to Christian Apologetics. And it kind of is like volume two of, of how to look at the person of Jesus historically to know if anything about him is true. Now, you take a really interesting approach in this book, and you take some angles that I haven't seen people use before. Um, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Andy, because that is something that was important to me. 
Because look, um, I remember when I first started teaching cold case Christianity at Biola, one of the students who was a master's, it's a master's degree class. And one of the students came in and said, you know, I just assume this cold case thing's a gimmick. Hmm. And I thought, I, that makes sense. I can understand why you would think that. And then I went through the entire class with him. At the end, I asked him, do you still think it's a gimmick? And he goes, no, no, I don't think that anymore. But at first, because it sounds like it's just like this thing, right? right? So what I try to do, though, is I try to be as creative as I can. I do not want to write a book that somebody else has already written and done a, probably a better job. I'm trying to write the book that nobody else has written. And, and that oh, they're really, to be honest, that nobody else could write unless they had done as many cold cases as, about, as I've done. Now, um, now, let's talk about that quickly here as we get deeper into things. What is a cold case? You know, what classifies as a cold case? And well, they're, they're right, all how homicide. does that apply to looking at historical events? Okay, got it. The, the cold cases are all homicides because there's no statute of limitations on a homicide. The, you know, a burglary is going to close after a certain number of years. It depends on the state, depends on the jurisdiction. A lesser crimes will eventually expire. You have a window in which to act to get the suspect in custody. And after that window expires, the statute of limitations, well, then you can't do it. Well, this is not true for murder. They stay open forever. So I can go back 40 years if I think I can work a case. And so what you often have are cases in which a witness has reported something, but the witness is now dead. And the person who wrote the report is also dead. So now how do I know what happened if both the witness and the report writer are dead? Well, that's the Gospels. So what we did basically was take a similar approach to working cold cases, and I applied them to the Gospels. And that's why that first book is cold case Christianity, but this is a little bit different. I've had a number of these nobody missings. I call them. Or the well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because this yeah. is one of the questions I had for you that comes yeah. up in the book is this nobody uh, missing person case. So it, yeah, please explain that. So that's, a, that's an important aspect of this book. I've had a couple of these, uh, three, I think now, um, is it four, three or four? And uh, one has been on Dateline. I don't think the others have been. Um, and these are cases where a husband has killed his wife and then says that she ran off. And I'm actually working a case right now in Los Angeles with the DA, uh, another one of these uh, where it's a nobody missing, nobody murder. So the question becomes, well, how do we know that she's dead? Number one. And the problem is, is that when we go back to work the case now, 10 years have gone by. And guess what? When the case was first reported, it was reported as a missing person. So nobody took any photographs. Nobody collected any evidence. They figure she'll come back tomorrow. Call us if she doesn't come back. Because, you know, if, the, if you can convince the detective, yeah, she got mad. She does this once in a while. She took off. I'm just reporting it just in case, you know. And you call her parents, you know, who are older, and they'll say, hey, this is your daughter left her husband. Oh, yeah, it's possible. Okay, well, it sounds like she's going to come back. So now you let it go a week. Well, if you let it go a week, they're going to get rid of the crime scene. They're going to clean it up. They're going to, you know, they have a week to cover their tracks. So by the time I get the case 10 years later, there's no crime scene. There's no evidence in a crime. There's not even any foot. He's moved. They've remodeled the house. I mean, there's nothing. So now how do you determine, especially how do you make a case in front of a jury when you've got an empty crime scene? Well, what I always tell juries is that some, on the day that happened, uh, someone lost her temper. If, if in fact she died and she was killed, there was an explosion on the day that she went missing. Now, I, I can't tell you what happened on that day yet, but I can do this. Every bomb that explodes has a fuse that burns slowly until it does explode. And then once it does explode, there's shrapnel all over the yard. 
So I'm going to show you what happened on the day this, of this murder by simply tracing the fuse and examining the fallout. These are, I call fuse and fallout cases. And I've done, I've actually illustrated the way I do in the book in front of juries. Here's the fuse. Here are all the pieces in the fuse. This is why it's clear something's going to happen. And then when it does happen, here's all the fallout that points to him as our suspect. So that's what we're trying to do here. Is there a fuse that burns up to the appearance of Jesus in the first century? And then is there, what is the shrap, what is all the fallout in culture, in humanity uh, in the 2000 years that point back to Jesus as that explosive individual that changed history forever from introduced a new era? Uh, you know, the call it the common era, or you're going to call it AD, whatever you're going to call it. He introduces this new era. Well, what is it about, you know, if you didn't know anything about what caused the change in our calendar, if you just knew that, Hey, there's a bunch of stuff, BCE, there's a bunch of stuff, CE, like, why is that different? Why is there so what, what caused that turn? And you didn't know anything about what might've caused it. Well, if I'm just examining the, the fuse and the fallout, even if there was not a single New Testament manuscript, even if the, the crime scene was empty, all New Testaments have been destroyed, utterly destroyed. You could still reconstruct every detail of the Jesus story just from the fuse and the fallout. And that amazing impact that Jesus had uh, is hard to explain unless he was who he said he was. Now, let me let me just kind of tease this out and ask you a question. So what we're saying here is you can have no crime scene, no physical evidence, and no victim body, but yet you can get a conviction. Yes. What kind of convictions have you had? Like, what's the oldest murder so so i've had these you know as a matter of fact one of these i don't want to go into too much detail what i try to do in every book is is take the cases i have had and then kind of mask them and i'll tell you that in the first chapter you know i'm gonna cut and peat and paste from like three or four different cases and when i was showing the fuse to a da who i've worked with for years i was just on a zoom call with him i said hey i want to show you my new book he's not a christian so I'm just trying to tease out, get him interested, right? So I'm showing him, and he's, oh, that's that case. Oh, that's that case. He <laughs> all my cases, but I don't think anybody else is going to. But he happened to know all the cases I kind of cut and paste. But I've had a, a, a number of these. And so what happens is you just show the rising tension, all of his preparatory moves. Uh, you know, what did he do to prepare? Did he have the weapon he needed? Did he have the disposal means he was hoping for? Did he set that stuff up in advance? Did he move her car? Did he do all these things in preparation for this big day? That stuff's going to point to something. And then afterwards, did he cover up in some way? Did he get rid of her stuff? Did Look, there's a guy right now on trial in Los Angeles on YouTube every day. I'm working in this case just in a very, 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 very small way uh, in the closing section of the case, okay? Because these DAs are friends of mine. And I'm, and I'm just kind of helping out to visualize. But the point is, as he's making this case, um, he's making mistakes. You know, he's saying things on the stand, the suspect, after the fact, they give away little things he did. Like he shouldn't know certain things, but he does seem to know those things. Those are the kinds of things in the fallout that give you away. Now, you've said something a couple of times that is just a fun fact for, uh, I think, listeners is you talk about illustrating. Uh, yeah. You are an incredible artist. And in each book you've done, you've actually done the illustrations. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, you and I have been on a number of speaking engagements where I see you over there and you just are drawing away for your for your next book, you know, with all the different illustrations. Now, you actually have used that same skill set in mm -hmm. creating because I know one of the things that really set you apart as a detective is that you would create quite elaborate PowerPoint presentations illustrating the evidence and where it leads. Yes. Now you do the same thing in your book where like, it's just brilliant and really helps people as they're reading and following the argument. 
Well, and a lot of this I learned from from doing. You know, I always wanted to illustrate things for juries because I think juries are we're visual learners now, and so much more. The culture is moving toward visual learning. Like, like for example, you're probably going to put this podcast on YouTube also, right? I, I probably would too. And why? Because there's something that we want to see it. Like you want, what's, what's, what's Andy look like? You know, like people, they hear your voice and they want to see what you look like. So, so a lot of this is about trying to capitalize on a culture that's becoming more and more visual. That's also my training. Before I began, I was training in fine arts. I had a design degree, a bachelor's and I have a master's in architecture. And then I became a police officer, but I missed those creative expressions. You know, when I was a, a, a detective, I started to reincorporate those. And I started to think about things like the fuse and fallout, right? That's a very simple visual uh, parable that when I tell it in front of a jury, it makes sense. And it organizes things on a timeline that otherwise I find that we're going to end up telling the jury about these 20 things, but it's not going to be visually organized for them so they can go, oh yeah, I can connect the dots, so to speak. So I want to make it visual, right? So we did that with this book as well. A lot of that too, Andy, came out of, we started writing children's books a couple of years ago, the children's versions of all of our adult books. And in those books- uh, you, you mean you and your wife, Susie? Yes, Susie and I. And so, so we, we really knew that we- wanted the ratio of image to text to be about 50-50. Like I didn't want a, a, a kid from uh, say eight to 12 to turn a page and not have some visual icon or illustration or sidebar or something. Well, by the time I got to writing person of interest, I really took like a kid's book approach to writing an adult book. There are not many pages in this book that you're going to open that there won't be an illustration of some sort somewhere on the page. And I just think it's so it's kind of got part graphic novel, part investigative journey and part, um, you know, personal story. Now, one of the things that I, I find really interesting about the approach that you would take is that you you talk about Jesus' popularity. You talk about people that were inspired by Jesus. You talk about art that was inspired by him. You, right. You're really taking a much broader look at the impact that Jesus had, you know, as, as you talk about kind of this fuse and bomb idea, like what, what impact did Jesus have that you incorporate into the evidence? Uh, now, do you think, no, I'm wondering if people would push back on that and go, can we, can we incorporate that into evidence about Jesus, given that it happened, that some of these things were inspired, maybe it'd be music or art was yeah. inspired maybe a thousand years later. Does, what sure. impact does that have? Yeah, no problem. So I think that the case we're making, well, the claim we're making related to the historicity and deity of Jesus uh, is, is two things. Number one, uh, the historicity, we can kind of trace everything back to, is it, is it more or less reasonable that all of this, the, the, the robust ways that this character impacted history is the result of a fictional character in the minds, well, there's tons of fictional characters that have preceded Jesus, in history and had a head start. There are even tons of religious characters, um, Indra, Krishna, um, Zoroaster, uh, Buddha. These all had a head start on Jesus. And there are a ton of fictional characters or religious characters that follow Jesus, and none of them had the kind of impact that Jesus had in the four or five, I got to the six of the most important facets and aspects of culture. No one had that kind of impact. So the first question is, is it more or less likely that Jesus was a real historical person? 
based on the, the kind of fuse leading up to Jesus and the impact afterwards. And I think that when you read the book, you'll see why it's, it's, there's, this is a very strong book for the historicity of Jesus, because a lot of what I'm tracing in the fallout could be within a hundred years of the life of Jesus. Then it goes all the way to 2000 years, right? So this immediate fallout, and then it's explained all the way to 2000 years into it. So I think that that's number one, historicity. Number two, though, is, is that why would this guy, given who he was and where he kind of came up in the world, why would this guy have this kind of impact? Given that there are thousands of people, millions of people who believe in other uh, forms of, of spirituality that either preceded or followed Jesus, and none of those had the collective impact that Jesus has had on these six areas of culture. And what we're tracing in the fallout is literature, visual arts, music, education, science, and spirituality, uh, especially non-Christian spirituality. So if you just look at those five areas, and that's why I think it's, it's yes, yeah, so obviously you could argue, well, in spite of all that, I still think he's a fictional character. Okay. I just think it's very unreasonable. Now, again, it's about the kind, you'll see if you track, like, for example, there's a chapter on literature where you see that I actually talk about all the Christian, uh, non-Christian sources, voices in the first three centuries. This is all before Christianity becomes the uh, religion of the empire. Because let's face it, uh, we all typically think that once power is involved, you can have some corruption. So let's let's get let's during during that time when Christians are either being chased or persecuted or tolerated in that up and down cycle of history for the first three hundred years. It turns out a lot was being said about Jesus of Nazareth, and it's built on something. And we're really going to argue that it's built on something that's entirely fictional, and if it is, it's incredibly consistent. Or we're going to argue there was really a person named Jesus of Nazareth that started all of this. And of those two options, I think the second is far more reasonable. Now, this is an important point that you have talked to me about in different conversations we've had where, you know, because one of the things that, you know, is a pushback and I've brought to you is, well, mm -hmm. you know, you can have this even in a court case where somebody could come up with anything that they want as a possible explanation. And, you know... Right. And I think you've said to me, you know, anything, Andy, anything's possible potentially. Right. But, right. but is it reasonable? Like, how yeah. do you, how do you tease those two things out? Because I think this is an important aspect of what faith actually is when we're, yes. when we're making a decision about what we're No, no you're right. You're right. We actually have a jury instruction that judges give um, uh, jurors to remind them the standard of proof in criminal trials at the highest level, which are all our homicide trials, at that highest level, the standard is not beyond a possible doubt because you could never, according to the judge's instructions, you could never prove anything beyond a possible doubt because, as the judge would say, I can always find some possible or imaginary doubt to level against a claim. That's why the standard is a little bit lower, but that's a good, it's okay that it's lower because it turns out there's nothing you know. I mean, you, you actually plugged in your equipment today to do this podcast, not knowing if the wiring in your house was possibly bad. You could have easily electrocuted yourself. Many people die in electrical shock every day from bad wiring. They did not know until they plugged in the plug. It's always possible, but it's not reasonable. That's why if you were going to live on the basis of what's possible, you basically wouldn't go out of your house because so much can happen to you in a day. Look, we're living in the generation of COVID-19. Are, really? Are we living at the, what's possible? It's always possible. You ought to stay in your house and mask up and never go out of your house ever. 
because it could happen a year from now, two years from now. Or do we operate at the level of reasonable doubt, right? Where we're trying to make, take the best precautions we have, but we're trying to be reasonable, not just imagine any possible scenario. So I think that we know that in our practical lives, we live at the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, not beyond the possible doubt standard. But then when it comes to issues like re uh, religion or like spirituality or like claims about theistic claims, those kinds of claims, oh, now those are going to demand something of me. Yeah, no, it's, it's still possible. Like we raise the bar so much higher for these kinds of claims, because to be honest, we don't want to bend our knee to, to anything other than us. And so we look for reasons to deny these kinds of truth claims. And sometimes that begins by just setting the bar really high. Now, one thing I like about your book, though, is that your book in many ways is trying to get rid of those or at least deal with at some level perhaps the cultural baggage that we take on. Now, in your section, for example, on science, you deal with cultural baggage that we might take on from, say, what we were told about Galileo or right. these different ideas that science and, and Christianity or faith are opposed to one another or different things, where a book like this, then, what we can do is, and what you do very well, Jim, I, I love in your writing, is you're clearing that cultural baggage out of the way. But at the end of the day, just like yourself when you're an atheist at 35, you know, you've got to weigh that that evidence and come to the conclusion that you're going right. to come to, right? That's it's right. not it's not like reading this book as some sort of soul, you know, apologetic silver, you know. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, I agree. Gosh, how many times, Andy, have you had somebody say, uh, "I want to get a copy of your book so I can give it to somebody and and they'll they'll immediately become a believer." And I know it's like, oh, please don't even, you know. I, I always say that I've I cannot... heard this many times, many times, and you have as well. Yes. I mean, we, I mean, it happens, right? And you're like, I feel bad. I almost feel like we're setting people up for disaster here, right? Because the reality of it is, is if you ask me, I would say, I never claim that I can prove anything because proof is the way you receive it. Oh, that proved to me that this is true, you would say. But what I'm trying to do is to give you what I found to be the most, uh, 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 the evidence that was made it the most reasonable inference. So I'm going to provide you the evidence that I think makes this the most reasonable inference. But whether the jury, if it proves anything to the jury, well, the jury is the one it has to be proven to. So I always tell people, look, there's lots of reasons why people deny truth claims that are well supported evidentially. Right. You might say, well, OK, look, there's not enough evidence for this. That's a rational rejection or a rational objection. The other one is, well, I don't um, I know a bunch of you homicide detectives are all a bunch of liars. Well, that doesn't talk about the evidence for the case. That's a more an emotional, visceral response. So there is an emotional character here. Or you're like, I just don't want to believe that my cousin could do this. So that's about volitional. It's a matter of the will. I cannot. I refuse to accept this claim. Well, it turns out most objections to truth claims in juries are not in the rational side. In other words, when we're trying to pick a jury, we're trying to get rid of the people in the jury selection pool. We're trying to eliminate the people who are going to have an emotional or volitional resistance to the claims so that all that's left are people who can at least tell us they'll make the effort not to allow their will or their emotions make their decisions. But let's face it, most of us, I mean, that, that's 70%, I think, of all objections, maybe 80% are not even rationally based. They're emotionally or volitionally based. And that's why when you say, I'm going to give you this piece of data, this book, right? Well, that's, that's a rat. If everyone was just responding to evidence without any other context, that might be one thing, but we're not wired that way. So a lot of what this is, is I'm just, like you said, trying to clear the cultural rubbish, the, the, the stuff that's in the trail, so that people can get to the gospel more easily. 
Now, we can't go through everything in the book, of course, and I yeah. want to encourage people to get the book, but I do want to just mention one. I want to illustrate what we're saying here with one uh, illustration that you have actually on page 118 that that I think is very helpful because in my time, in my studies, I'm amazed at how often people just have a difficult time understanding, first of all, what they're getting with the Gospels, but then particularly when you see these Gnostic Gospels showing yes. up or when you see all this extra material. Now, you compare this with Elvis, which I think is, which I think is great. And you have this uh, line here, you say, when someone has the kind of cultural impact Elvis had, we should expect there to be significant fallout, including literature written by people who would distort the truth and even co-opt his story for their own advantage. Which I, happened. I mean, I, I was I remember when he account old enough. Sorry, I am older than you quite a bit. But I was remember I was working at a, uh, the truth a small, comes up. There it is. I was working at a small market, and I was outside bleeping the uh, the uh, parking lot of this market because that's we this very small market had like ten spots. So I'm sweeping it and collecting all the trash in the parking lot as a kid, as a teenager, and uh, when when Elvis uh, passed, and I remember it, and it wasn't it, it literally every year since Elvis has died, it's been forty years, I think more. Uh, a book, at least one book has been written about Elvis Presley. And oftentimes there'd be 10 books written in a calendar year. And they are written by people in different categories. People, the Presleys who actually knew him and grew up with him have written books. Uh, they like him. So you expect that. There are people who liked Elvis who are not Presleys. And they sometimes will, you know, change the story because maybe they're trying to make a buck. These things, books come out later, usually in the Presley catalog of books. And then there are people who just didn't like Elvis and, and they were just kind of beating him up. Up and really trying to, to put in salacious things about Elvis Presley to make a dollar. Okay, well, those three categories, people who, Presleys who liked uh, um, uh, Elvis, non-Presleys who liked Elvis, and non-Presleys who disliked Elvis, that's really accounts for all the literature on Elvis Presley. And he was a big enough star that there was a lot written about him. Well, okay, so if Jesus is that kind of star, you would expect the same kinds of categories. And sure enough, you've got Christians who like Jesus, the church fathers, the Antonicene fathers. They write a lot about Jesus. We can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the church fathers. Now, I tried to do a very good job of giving you the statistics. I did not develop those. I credit those in my, my case notes. A friend of David Geisler, Norm Geisler's son, David. I remember, I think I read it in Norm Geisler's book, where all but 11 verses of the New Testament could be reconstructed from the church fathers. Well, I have a hard time sourcing that, and I've never been able to source that. So I needed, I pushed back. And I called Norm and I called Dave back when Norm was still alive and David, and they did a great job of assembling the actual data on how much of the gospels can be reconstructed from church fathers, the Antonicene fathers. We're trying to get those done before Christianity is allegedly, or could have even been corrupted by the Roman empire. So I'm trying to do that early. So there's the Christians who like Jesus. They say a lot, you can reconstruct Jesus from just those books. But interestingly, there were a lot of non-Christians who liked Jesus. And those are the canonical, the non-canonical gospels. These folks, in the sense that we know what must be, uh, what we must embrace as a Christian essential about the deity of God, of Christ, about the triune nature of God, about the substitutionary atonement. Well, all of these things are rejected by those people who like Jesus, but they're not Christians. So they reject largely the theology of Christianity, but they like the person of Jesus and they co-opt him and they corrupt the story. But here's the interesting thing. They all do it standing on the details of the true story of Jesus, the same way the Elvis 
writers stand on the details of the true Elvis story, where he grew up, when he first started recording his albums, all that stuff's the same. They just start to twist the story afterwards. Well, they do the same thing in the non-canonical gospels. So you can reconstruct the truth about Jesus just from looking at the common ground that these non-canonical authors are standing on. So you can even get details about Jesus from the lies. And then finally, you have the non-Christians who disliked Jesus. And those are all of the either Greek, Roman, Persian, Jewish sources in antiquity. And I've assembled all of them. And so if you look at that list, that, that group that I've drawn, you will see there are far more ancient voices from non-Christian sources when you add the non-canonical gospels to the Jews and Romans and Greeks and Persians and Egyptians, all the people who are writing about Jesus in the first three centuries, you would be amazed at how much data is out there. Now, here's my whole point in saying that. What can you think of a fictional character at any point in human history that has that kind of impact on literature? No. You will not, I dare define it. Go ahead, knock yourself out. Can you think of an historic character who actually lived, who had that kind of impact on history? Knock yourself out. Try to show me who it is. So it turns out that this is the kind of monumental impact on literature. It's not just that. I go in that same chapter. I talk about all the books and the history of books that have been written. He is still written about more, according to the Library of Congress and according to Google Books. He is the focus of more books than any other character in all of history. And it's not even close to the second place guy. Well, so tell not- me how he has that kind of impact. If he's just a, a blip, if he's just an imaginary thing, this is my point, is that the, the kind of impact Jesus had not only demonstrates his historicity, but it also demonstrates something supernatural about the impact he had. I completely agree with you, and I think it's such an important point, because I think there's there's some people that will see these sorts of things, you know, these these books written uh, you know, the, these non-canonical gospels or, or whatever, whether it be the gospel of Thomas or Peter or whatever, and, yeah. and you know... That doesn't discourage me. That encourages me because I'm like, yeah, that's right. In the same way that the Da Vinci Code is being written or whatever else, it's because of Jesus's popularity that yes. these books were being were being written and and used. I mean, as you've mentioned and, and talked about, he's the most he was the most famous person who shouldn't have been famous, by the way. That's you right. know, coming from from Nazareth in this. No, you know, there's nowhere town in the middle of a right. nowhere in the Roman Empire, right? right. And yet he outshines uh, uh, Tiberius, the most famous person at that time of, of his own life. Yeah, when, if you look at everyone else in the first century who lived, I do this in the last chapter, look at every other significant historical character in the first century and ask yourself, could any of these cause the cataclysmic kind of change in the eras that changed BCE into CE? Could any of them look at all the people in the first century? And I've listed them all. You'll see that together, they don't have the kind of impact that this guy had who was raised in some nowhere town, only been about 200 miles from that nowhere town ever in his entire life. And he ended up going to be born in one nowhere town and raised in another nowhere town. With no family, really, to think of, if you think about it, the family he had was not like a, a high-profile family, right? He was accused of being an illegitimate son. They didn't have much money, didn't have access to the kind of education that the, that the people who were in leadership had. He never led a nation. He never wrote a book. He never wrote a sonnet. He never wrote an opera. He never uh, led an army. He never he doesn't have any of that impact 
on, on history. He, he never had the kind of money. He was uh, hunted by the people who thought they had power. He was uh, basically ignored by the people who were religious, betrayed by the people who called him a friend. Okay. When you just think about all that Jesus had to go through, all right, falsely accused, mocked, then beaten, then he has to borrow a grave just to get buried. This guy, this nobody, has the kind of impact. And if you look at also, forget about just people in the first century. I also have a list of all the deities and religious leaders of all of history. Look at all of them. Who's had the impact of Jesus? Nobody. Now, you might say, no, that's just Western impact. No, no, I'm I'm tracing in this book. If you said, well, look, uh, in science, for example, yeah, well, sure, during the scientific revolution, I mean, that happened in Europe. All of Europe was Christian. Well, it didn't have to happen in Europe, did it? There were more people in Asia than there were in Europe. Why didn't it happen there? I could have found people in the Middle East, could have found people in Persia, could have found people all around the Mediterranean. Why did it happen where it happened? It happened in Christendom because there was something about the worldview inaugurated by Jesus of Nazareth that was an igniter for the sciences. And it still can be. What gets me is I wrote this book and about halfway through, Andy, I realized that it's not, I've had a lot of books about evidence for Jesus, but really this is a book about why Jesus still matters. Because all the stuff that as an atheist I thought mattered, that would have been literature, the arts, music, education, and science. Those five things, as an atheist, I thought were the most important five things about living. Well, it turns out that all five of those things are utterly dependent upon Jesus and his followers, that he inaugurated a worldview that caused an explosion in those five areas. I even have one chart in the sciences where you can see when the sciences take off and where Jesus falls in the timeline. He could have fallen anywhere in the timeline. He could have fallen once the sciences had already started to explode. No, he he falls in the timeline at at the very beginning. Because it's his worldview that initiated the educational systems are the same way. And when you see this, I just want young people to realize it. Because I think what we've done is we've said, hey, Jesus is just another artifact, just another aspect that's kind of forgotten on the shelf behind us. You've got shelves behind you. I got shelves behind me. And he's just another book on a shelf. But it turns out he's the reason why the shelf is there. And we just haven't been able to illustrate that, I think, properly for young people. One thing that has really impacted me is I I think about Mark chapter two, where Jesus is dealing with a paralyzed man. And for many of us, I think we think, oh, wow, you know, a real miracle would be, you know, to heal a paralyzed man. But Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Right. And Jesus says, I know you think that the healing, the paralyzed man is the impressive, you know, miracle, but actually forgiving sins and being able to change a person. That's, that's an incredible miracle. And, and ultimately is an act of God. And you, we get this as people watching are going, man, this Jesus, he's claiming to be God. And the older I get, Jim, the more I'm impressed, not by these physical miracles. I am much, much more impressed by how Jesus, all these years later, is still able to change people from the inside out, myself included, and I know with you as well. My life has been utterly changed by Jesus, and I'm so thankful for him. Let me ask you as we close this. this, this yeah, interview. sure. As an atheist at, the, mm-hmm. at 35 years of age, you're looking at all this evidence, Jim. What was it that led you to this verdict where you place your trust in Jesus, and what impact did it have on your life? 
Well, it wasn't so much. And I often say this, I'm not a one piece of evidence guy. I'm a cumulative case guy. This is how all my cases have been in trial. But I, I think that what it wasn't it really anything that the gospel said about Jesus that changed it for me. It was what the New Testament said about Jim Wallace that changed everything for me. But I wasn't willing to listen to what the, God, uh, what the New Testament letters, what Jesus had to say about sin. I wasn't really ready to listen to any of that until I could first confirm that it was telling me something true about Jesus. Now, once I did that, I started to really kind of go deep dive into what it is, what's the worldview inaugurated by Jesus? What, how do we get here? Why is it so messed up? How do we fix it? And I knew that I was part of that second part too. How, why is it so messed up? I knew my, you know, I, I, you, once you set a sense of your need for a savior, the savior becomes something you seek. And I just it wasn't ready in my life to even take it seriously. But when I was reading through Paul's letter in the, to the Romans, and I can remember where I was, I was working on a surveillance in a city next to mine. Uh, we were working, a, a, I think it was a rob, I think it might've been a burglary case. And we were sitting in a neighborhood against the school. And I was against the schoolyard when I was reading through Romans and I kept on going. And then I got into first Corinthians and that passage on the natural man versus the spiritual man. I, I just, all of it just started to weigh, weigh heavy on me. And I realized that it was describing me in a way that I could now trust because I had done the hard lifting to discover that it was reliable in the other areas about Jesus and Nazareth. So I think that's really what made the difference for me. You can get to believe that by just studying Jesus, but you want belief in it. You've got to study what the Bible says about you. And uh, I think you, and I just wasn't ready to hear that. I wasn't ready to hear that until I had spent a, a probably about six to eight months doing what we describe in these books. And that's just who I am, right? Because I have been fooled. I have worked cases where I was so certain I had the right guy. And then I do a DNA test and find out that it was his roommate. And I thought, oh my goodness, I was close, but how could I be so wrong? So I'm always the last guy in now. Like I want to be the, you know, I'm not going to be fooled again. And that's kind of the view I took when I got to this case. I didn't want to be fooled. So I took my time, but I hope that books like this for other people who don't want to, who think like, you know, that this is all just such a, a, an obvious lie because they are such a rejection of the supernatural that they can't imagine it ever being true. Well, I'm hoping that books like this will help you to see that this is somebody, if you're thinking about God at all, you should start with Jesus because it turns out he's responsible for our ability. If you're college educated, you should probably start with Jesus. If you're educated, you went to kindergarten, just to elementary school, and you went from one grade to the next, you should probably start with Jesus because it turns out it was Jesus and his followers who are responsible for your education because we really are still standing in the shadow of the um, universities and schools and cathedral schools and monasteries established by Christians where this kind of education uh, was birthed. So I just think in the end, if you're interested at all, you ought to start with Jesus for any number of reasons. And that's why I think he still matters. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's so much, Jim, that could be said about that and developed even further. Because I even think about even in the area of history of philosophy, the number that it, it was Christians translating the works, it, continuing, you know, these works yes. of of antiquity. Oh, absolutely. So if it wasn't for these monasteries, uh, that Casadorius, uh, I think, also in uh, the Benedictine uh, monasteries were were repositories for all of the ancient uh, writings of non Christians. Listen, I, our good friend Richard Howe from Southern Evangelical Seminary, he says, well, why didn't you include philosophy as one of your, this is the seventh leg of, well, I, you know, where do you stop? This is the kind of impact that Jesus had. I'm only touching the surface, the tip of the iceberg on all these things. You could do a lot more. But what I wanted was one 
concise place. Frank Turk, our friend, he he says, why didn't you write seven books here? The three and the five or the three, like eight books would have been good here. Oh, really? Yeah. People are going to read eight books. Tell you what, let's just do it all in one book. And it'll be, you know, just kind of, it's tip of the iceberg stuff. Now, um, you have actually written a, a lot more, though. So if people would like to go deeper or, or more, first of all, I want to encourage you. Uh, Purse of Interest is a great book. You will thoroughly enjoy it. And there is uh, wonderful and refreshing new ways in which Jim is coming at this evidence that I think will really uh, help you. But, Jim, if people want to learn more about your ministry or uh, stuff you've written, again, I, I can't believe the amount of material that you have produced, but where would you send them? Well, uh, just at coldcasechristianity.com, coldcasechristianity.com. That's our ministry name from the first book. And you'll find all the resources related to person of interest and all of that. If you wanted to pre-order the book, it doesn't publish till the 21st of September. I'm not sure when we're going to post this, this podcast, but if you can head over to personofinterestbook.com, personofinterestbook.com. And I'll continue to up that, update that. We've got some free materials we're giving away with the book. So that's a place to kind of grab those. Uh, Jim, people ask me all the time, what resources do you have for children? What resources do you, you know, have you and Susie produced for parents? And what do you, what do you have it with regards to this material that could be used with children? Yeah, we have the case for Jesus, the case for God, and the case for uh, kind of expressing a, a, a evidential faith at uh, casemakersacademy.com, casemakersacademy.com. That's just a complete curriculum and three separate academies. They're kind of based on our children's books, but there's a lot of free materials at that website. Also, you can download activity sheets and all kinds of other um, fill-in sheets and even a certificate when you complete each course. That's at casemakersacademy.com. Awesome. It was great having you with us. Uh, look forward to uh, having you out again. And uh, and I'm waiting for the invitation, Andy. I'm waiting for the invitation. All right. <laughs> it's coming. It's in the mail. All right. I uh, appreciate you so much. Listeners, thank you for joining us on the AC podcast. This has been the Ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we will come back next week with more things to think about. <laughs>